0: Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome. Thanks for tuning in with us. Today, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Knauss. Uh We're going to be talking about a very high-yield topic, which is growth and development. It makes up about 5% of the board content, so certainly something you're going to see on your boards. Just introduce Dr. Knaus. he's a pediatric hospitalist at Riley Hospital for Children, and he also works on the developmental uh, pediatric service on occasion as well. So welcome, Dr. Knaus. Yeah,
1: thanks for having me, Dr. Rayburn.
0: So. <laughs> all right, so we're going to be looking at both normal and abnormal growth. Uh, we're going to start there. There's going to be a second part to this lecture that's going to be focused on um, failure to thrive, so stay tuned for that as well. So we'll go ahead and jump right in. We often see, I mean, we do see kids in our clinic all the time, and at those clinic appointments, we use certain parameters to kind of see how kids are growing but I think there may be some issues with how we do that. Is there anything that you can think of that maybe we need to think about as far as how we're measuring kids?
1: Yeah, that's a a great question and a great place to start, David. So um, as you know, and you've talked about that assessment of growth is one of the single most important indicators of nutritional status. So each clinic visit, um, we ask our residents and our physicians to monitor growth um, and development with certain parameters. We look at uh, weight, height, head circumference, and BMI at a certain age and and track those as those children grow. So maybe talk about height. Yep. so talking about height or length, and so um, again, the, the age of two is our cutoff. So under the age of two, you want them recumbent or laying, and you need at least two people working on that specific Length at that time to make sure that they're stretched out nicely and that you're getting an accurate measurement. After the age of two, you can then transition them from recumbent to standing height. You have to just make sure that you then transition to the right growth charts for that child and for that age and and height specifically.
0: And I think that you're showing your developmental pediatrician and yourself right now with how specific these measurements are because I know a lot of times in my clinic. I will see very different weights or very different heights documented, specifically when they turn two years of age, and all of a sudden you look at their curve, and when they start to plot them on that curve, it's it's drastically different. So I think you're, the importance that you're highlighting of the same scale uh, and the same measurements is is definitely important and probably uh, something that may come up on the boards. just asking you. It's probably going to be remeasure the child.
1: Yep. So you wanna always look for a trend if possible. If you have a, an outlier on your board exam and it seems just way out of place, one of the options may be to, to remeasure or have the child back in a in a short amount of time to um, get another measurement to trend where those those measurements are going.
0: Yep. And I think you hit you, you hit that high point right there, is that the trend is more important than anything for these patients. All right, great. So why don't we talk a little bit about normal versus abnormal uh, as it relates to growth and weight gain? Because I know there's some things that
1: can actually be normal, but then there's
0: other things in the, in the trends that we need to be concerned about. Is that
1: correct? That's correct. So I think two of the, the main examples that they talk about for your boards are um, being able to look at a growth chart and distinguish if this is a genetic or familial short stature um, or a case where both parents are short and the child is going to be shorter versus a constitutional growth delay um, or your, um, in quotes, late bloomers. Um, and so they've given you pictures to, to monitor and look at, and you have to be able to distinguish between those two, looking at familial short stature or the genetic sh- short stature in general. Um, it should follow a general trend that is lower than the normal age. So that's a child where just um, very early, they start out on the third percentile, and they just continue on that percentile until they, they reach their min, mid-parental height um, that we can talk about shortly. Whereas constitutional growth delay, or your late bloomers, you see a decrease in weight and height in infancy, and then it follows that shorter curve, but then there's a, a big catch-up or an acceleration of growth in adolescence to achieve their expected height. Um, And so those were two of the big ones that they wanted you to focus on.
0: Okay. But those are normal, right? Like those are. Right. So are there any, are there things that we should look at the chart and think that this is abnormal?
1: Yeah. So abnormal charts that um, they focused on are, are really your children with chronic disease. So specifically kids with illnesses like Crohn's disease or JIA that are going to really impact um, their weight, their height, their head circumference at times, and they want you to be able to look at a chart and distinguish if this is a problem or not. So with children with chronic disease, again, you need to see multiple plot points to to formulate a trend. Um, And what what the trend will show you is that it starts to cross bars or slows down, um, whether it's um, the weight, or the height or the head circumference, if you start to see deceleration in growth, um, you need to start to be concerned. And so some of the numbers they, they like you to know are that if, it, if a deceleration um, under the fifth percentile or the, the, um, the lower portion of the curve or a um, number of under five centimeters per year of growth after five years of age... Um, or if they cross greater than two percentiles and, and stay in that, at that point, you want to start to be concerned about a chronic disease. And then um, a lot of the times they'll prompt you to, to get more information. So further history and physical on those visits and that will then lead you to imaging or further testing.
0: So that I was going to say, so they'll give you a growth chart and you'll just see this kid had normal plotting height or whatever. And then it just kind of, tails off and that should clue you like you said into either further testing or further history and physical and that's just good test taking strategy right there is if they ask you if you should take more history answer is probably
1: yes well almost always yes that's that's exactly correct so you want to look at that trend if the trend starts to look abnormal crossing more lines deceleration and growth that would prompt you to look further okay
0: And I think you had mentioned uh, when you and I were talking kind of offline about some of the other things we should think about when measuring that can throw things off. I think scoliosis might have been one of them. Yeah,
1: so there's a lot of specific populations that can be difficult to measure in general, Um, and even some populations that have their own growth charts um, to be aware of. Kids that are difficult to measure are kids with contractures or scoliosis, so there are other ways to measure. Specifically, you can look at crown rump length or sitting heights or compare arm span or upper arm length. So these are things that are not as well studied um, and you don't have as big of a population size to compare them to, but are other possibilities or ways to measure children that are are don't fit our general trend. Um, that your WHO and CDC charts are based off of. Other uh, populations that you want to be aware of are kids with Down syndrome or chondroplasia um, or very low birth weight babies have specific charts for them that you can use. So if prompted on a test with a a very specific population, you want to make sure that you're comparing that to the right chart on your exam or in clinic in real life. All right, so another
0: measurement we're probably going to see is BMI or body mass index. I think it's becoming more and more important, especially with all the focus on childhood obesity. I know there can be some problems with BMI, and then there's also some reasons for us to use BMI, but how can we kind of differentiate between the two and, and how to best use it?
1: Yeah, BMI is interesting. It's being used to evaluate um, really a, a young child or a teenager's overall risks for obesity. Um, um, risk for being overweight and risk for um, becoming obese as adults. It's easily done, so it's a a calculation that you can easily do in clinic. Some of the limitations that we're seeing, though, it's, it's not always used in the correct way or it's not widely used enough to compare a large population of children. BMI specifically, it's calculated using the weight in kilograms and dividing that by the height in meters squared, They would like you to know general numbers, so less than 18.5 is considered underweight, moving upwards to a BMI of 25 to 29.9 is considered overweight, and then over 30 is considered obese. Um, They'd also like you to know that a BMI in the 85th to the 95th percentile was overweight over that or over the 95th percentile is considered obese. And then Looking specifically at how we can use this, so you, if you formulate these numbers in clinic, it can be used as a, a tool of discussion with your at-risk teens or as, at-risk children, because they've noted that being obese as a child or overweight, having other risk factors like increased screen time or one obese parent, highly increase the risk of um, obesity and then all that comes along with that in adulthood. So they can use that number to compare it to the, the metabolic syndrome that we look at in adults. They can also use that to look for risks for cognitive or behavioral changes in adolescence, um, risk of depression, risk of hypertension, and risk of diabetes in adulthood.
0: And I actually have seen questions before they where they want you to calculate the BMI because the, the stem will actually make it look like the child's normal. And then if you actually calculate their BMI, specifically the low one, you'll find out that their BMI is like 18% or 17%. And you're yep. like, okay, well, that's underweight. And then the opposite side of that is you calculate it out and you see they're obese and then it's all of the things that go along with childhood obesity that you need to counsel the family on and why it's important to get them into a normal range to prevent all the things you just
1: discussed no exactly i think it'd be good for your exams and for clinic to know the normal ranges if you fall outside of those ranges it's usually going to prompt you to use that information for counseling or um, further evaluation of that child at that time
0: Okay, so next we're gonna talk about head circumference. This is certainly a highly tested topic, and that can definitely be a harbinger of bad things. So how can we kind of look at normal versus abnormal head growth?
1: Yeah, I think I think what you said about a harbinger for bad things can be can be highlighted in, in a few different ways. So I think starting to look at just head malformations or changes in that head circumference and a stepwise pattern would be beneficial for your testing, specifically looking at uh, microcephaly versus macrocephaly, and then just in general, kind of the abnormal shaped head or plagiocephaly versus um, some of the craniosynostoses So looking at um, micro versus macrocephaly first, you're, you're looking at really kind of normal shaped heads they're just either too big or too small so head circumference two to three standard deviations away from the norm for um, age and gender and so you'll see a, a stem where again you're going to have likely multiple plot points or it could be one plot point that is very far outside of that norm if if they don't specifically ask you to just remeasure and clarify those clop, that one abnormal plot point and you're looking at a trend it usually requires further investigation promptly. So mm. this
0: one's not as easy as with our height and weight where we can watch them for a little bit. This is probably something that's going to need a little bit more investigation right off the bat if you just have this sudden change in head circumference um, that re- remeasuring isn't an option.
1: Yep, perfect. And usually they'll give you... Um, A child that has other signs or symptoms that you will trigger into that are very abnormal. So if they're giving you a child with macrocephaly, specifically, they might tell you that they have seizures or concerns for developmental delay or um, changes in their fontanelle. So a bulging fontanelle, of course, would be more concerning than a a normal, just large fontanelle to key you into things like hydrocephalus as opposed to just general macrocephaly from a a familial or a benign reason. Like we said, bad things. Bad things. Yep. So microcephaly specifically, um, you're looking at a a smaller brain um, that results in usually premature fusion of those skull bones. Um, This is different than craniosynostosis, which is just a premature suture closure and usually one or two at a time. So from that, you look at primary versus secondary. So primary is going to be from a chromosomal insult or early on, and secondary can be either prenatal or postnatal insults like infection or IVH. And their, their specific instructions are to always do a good h get more information, and then these children usually need further workup with genetic studies, a brain MRI, and sometimes a metabolic or infectious workup. Looking specifically at plagiocephaly or asymmetric growth of the head due to internal or external forces on the head, they highlight positional posterior plagiocephaly. So, those are those kids that we bring into clinic that have some um, external force from laying on their back for protection from SIDS that has caused their head shape to change. So, it's going to give you a parallelogram look where the Ear on the ipsilateral, ipsilateral side is anterior displaced, as well as you'll see ipsilateral occipito parietal flattening and ipsilateral frontal bossing. So that's your parallelogram shape versus unilateral lambdoid synostosis, where the ear on the ipsilateral side is posterior, and then you see contralateral um, frontal bossing.
0: And we'll put some pictures on the Twitter of this afterwards so you can see what these look like as well.
1: Yeah. And then they want you to know that you you have to be able to differentiate between just what we talked about, a positional posterior plagiocephaly and asymmetric growth due to premature closure. The most common closure or, or types of craniosynostosis are sagittal and where you'll see a long narrow head. And then they also want you to know that this is very serious. So if you're given an abnormal head shape or discussion of abnormal head um, shape on your exam, it it prompts immediate referral to neurosurgery and a CT scan or or head imaging before you move any further.
0: All right. Very good. Okay, guys, we're going to take a break now, but make sure you come back and listen to Failure to Thrive to complete this conversation. (laughs)